Section fifty-nine: The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume One, by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Johnson's first letter to Boswell, I Type Fifty-Four. Utrecht, seeming at first very dull to me after the animated scenes of London, my spirits were grievously affected, and I wrote to Johnson a plaintive and desponding letter, to which he paid no regard afterwards when i had acquired a firmer tone of mind i wrote him a second letter expressing much anxiety to hear from him at length i received the following epistle which was of important service to me and i trust will be so to many others a mr boswell a la cour de l'empereur utrecht dear sir you are not to think yourself forgotten or criminally neglected that you have had yet no letter from me i love to see my friends to hear from them to talk to them and to talk of them but it is not without a considerable effort of resolution that i prevail upon myself to write i would not however gratify my own indolence by the omission of any important duty or any office of real kindness to tell you that i am or am not well that i have or have not been in the country that i drank your health in the room in which we sat last together and that your acquaintance continue to speak of you with their former kindness topics with which those letters are commonly filled which are written only for the sake of writing i seldom shall think worth communicating but if i can have it in my power to calm any harassing disquiet to excite any virtuous desire to rectify any important opinion or fortify any generous resolution you need not doubt but i shall at least wish to prefer the pleasure of gratifying a friend much less esteemed than yourself before the gloomy calm of idle vacancy whether i shall easily arrive at an exact punctuality of correspondence i cannot tell i shall at present expect that you will receive this in return for two which i have had from you the first indeed gave me an account so hopeless of the state of your mind that it hardly admitted or deserved an answer by the second i was much better pleased and the pleasure will still be increased by such a narrative of the progress of your studies as may evince the continuance of an equal and rational application of your mind to some useful inquiry you will perhaps wish to ask what study i would recommend i shall not speak of theology because it ought not to be considered as a question whether you shall endeavour to know the will of god I shall therefore consider only such studies as we are at liberty to pursue or to neglect and of these i know not how you will make a better choice than by studying the civil law as your father advises and the ancient languages as you had determined for yourself at least resolve while you remain in any settled residence to spend a certain number of hours every day amongst your books 
the dissipation of thought of which you complain is nothing more than the vacillation of a mind suspended between different motives and changing its direction as any motive gains or loses strength if you can but kindle in your mind any strong desire if you can but keep predominant any wish for some particular excellence or attainment the gusts of imagination will break away without any effect upon your conduct and commonly without any traces left upon the memory boswell's characters sketched by johnson anno domini seventeen sixty three there lurks perhaps in every human heart a desire of distinction which inclines every man first to hope and then to believe that nature has given him something peculiar to himself this vanity makes one mind nurse aversion and another actuate desires till they rise by art much above their original state of power and as affectation in time improves to habit that last tyrannize over him who at first encouraged them only for show every desire is a viper in the bosom who while he was chill was harmless but when warmth gave him strength exerted it in poison you know a gentleman who when first he set his foot in the gay world as he prepared himself to whirl in the vortex of pleasure imagined a total indifference and universal negligence to be the most agreeable concomitants of youth and the strongest indication of an airy temper and a quick apprehension vacant to every object and sensible of every impulse he thought that all appearance of diligence would deduct something from the reputation of genius and hoped that he should appear to attain amidst all the ease of carelessness and all the tumult of diversion that knowledge and those accomplishments which mortals of the common fabric obtain only by mute abstraction and solitary drudgery he tried this scheme of life a while was made weary of it by his sense and his virtue he then wished to return to his studies and finding long habits of idleness and pleasure harder to be cured than he expected still willing to retain his claim to some extraordinary prerogatives resolved the common consequences of irregularity into an unalterable decree of destiny and concluded that nature had originally formed him incapable of rational employment let all such fancies illusive and destructive be banished henceforward from your thoughts for ever resolve and keep your resolution choose and pursue your choice if you spend this day in study you will find yourself still more able to study to-morrow not that you are to expect that you shall at once obtain a complete victory depravity is not very easily overcome resolution will sometimes relax and diligence will sometimes be interrupted 
but let no accidental surprise or deviation whether short or long dispose you to despondency consider these failings as incident to all mankind begin again where you left off and endeavour to avoid these seducements that prevailed over you before this my dear boswell is advice which perhaps has been often given you and given you without effect but this advice if you will not take from others you must take from your own reflections if you purpose to do the duties of the station to which the bounty of providence has called you let me have a long letter from you as soon as you can i hope you continue your journal and enrich it with many observations upon the country in which you reside it will be a favour if you can get me any books in the frisic language and can inquire how the poor are maintained in the seven provinces i am dear sir your most affectionate servant samuel johnson london december the eighth seventeen sixty three i am sorry to observe that neither in my own minutes nor in my letters to johnson which have been preserved by him can i find any information how the poor are maintained in the seven provinces but i shall extract from one of my letters what i learnt concerning the other subject of his curiosity the frisic language i fifty four i have made all possible inquiry with respect to the frisic language and find that it has been less cultivated than any other of the northern dialects a certain proof of which is their deficiency of books of the old frisic there are no remains except some ancient laws preserved by schottainus in his beschreibinger van de heerischheid van friesland and his historia frisica i have not yet been able to find these books Professor Trotz, who formerly was of the University of Vereniken in Friesland, and is at present preparing an edition of all the Frisic laws, gave me this information. Of the modern Frisic, or what is spoken by the Boers at this day, I have procured a specimen. It is Gisbe Japix's Rymelerie, which is the only book that they have. It is amazing that they have no translation of the Bible, no treatises of devotion, nor even any of those ballads and story-books which are so agreeable to country people. You shall have Yapix by the first convenient opportunity. I doubt not to pick up Scotanus. Meinherr Trotz has promised me his assistance. Johnson's visit to Langton, Anno Domini, 1764, 1764, I Early in 1764, Johnson paid a visit to the Langton family at their seat of Langton in Lincolnshire, where he passed some time, much to his satisfaction. Footnote. According to Mrs. Piozzi, Anecdotes, page 210, he was accompanied by his black servant frank i must have you know ladies said he that frank has carried the empire of cupid further than most men 
when i was in lincolnshire so many years ago he attended me thither and when we returned home together i found that a female haymaker had followed him to london for love if this story is generally true it bears the mark of mrs piozzi's usual inaccuracy the visit was paid early in the year and was over in february what haymakers were there at that season End of footnote. his friend bennet langton it will not be doubted did everything in his power to make the place agreeable to so illustrious a guest and the elder mr langton and his lady being fully capable of understanding his value were not wanting in attention he however told me that old mr langton though a man of considerable learning had so little allowance to make for his occasional laxity of talk footnote. boswell by his quotation marks refers i think to his hebrides october the twenty fourth seventeen seventy three where johnson says nobody at times talks more laxly than i do he also post volume two page seventy three and a footnote had so little allowance to make for his occasional laxity of talk that because in the course of discussion he sometimes mentioned what might be said in favour of the peculiar tenets of the romish church he went to his grave believing him to be of that communion footnote see post april the twenty sixth seventeen seventy six for old mr langton's slowness of understanding End of footnote. johnson during his stay at langton had the advantage of a good library and saw several gentlemen of the neighbourhood i have obtained from mr langton the following particulars of this period he was now fully convinced that he could not have been satisfied with a country living for talking of a respectable clergyman in lincolnshire he observed this man sir fills up the duties of his life well i approve of him but could not imitate him to a lady who endeavoured to vindicate herself from blame for neglecting social attention to worthy neighbours by saying i would go to them if it would do them any good he said what good madam do you expect to have in your power to do them it is showing them respect and that is doing them good so socially accommodating was he that once when mr langton and he were driving together in a coach and mr langton complained of being sick he insisted that they should go out and sit on the back of it in the open air which they did and being sensible how strange the appearance must be observed that a countryman whom they saw in a field would probably be thinking if these two madmen should come down what will become of me Footnote. Mr. Best, Memorials, page 65, thus writes of a visit to Langton. We walked to the top of a very steep hill behind the house. Langton said, 
poor dear dr johnson when he came to this spot turned back to look down the hill and said he was determined to take a roll down when we understood what he meant to do we endeavoured to dissuade him but he was resolute saying he had not had a roll for a long time and taking out of his lesser pockets whatever might be in them and laying himself parallel with the edge of the hill he actually descended turning himself over and over till he came to the bottom this story was told with such gravity and with an air of such affectionate remembrance of a departed friend that it was impossible to suppose this extraordinary freak an invention of mr langton it must have been in the winter that he had this role End of footnote. the literary club anno domini seventeen sixty four list of members itar fifty five soon after his return to london which was in february was founded that club which existed long without a name but at mr garrick's funeral became distinguished by the title of the literary club Footnote. boswell himself so calls it in a letter to temple written three or four months after garrick's death letters of boswell page two four two see also boswell's hebrides august the twenty fifth seventeen seventy three end of footnote sir joshua reynolds had the merit of being the first proposer of it footnote. malone says reynolds was the original founder of our literary club about the year seventeen sixty two the first thought of which he started to dr johnson at his own fireside prize malone mrs piozzi anecdotes page one two two says johnson called reynolds their romulus or said somebody else of the company called him so which was more likely according to hawkins life page forty five the club was founded in the winter of seventeen sixty three that is seventeen sixty three to four End footnote. sir joshua reynolds had the merit of being the first proposer of it to which johnson acceded and the original members were sir joshua reynolds dr johnson mr edmund burke dr nugent footnote dr nugent a physician was burke's father-in-law macaulay essays says as we close boswell's book the club-room is before us and the table on which stands the omelette for nugent and the lemons for johnson it was from mrs piozzi that macaulay learnt of the omelette nugent was a roman catholic and it was on a friday that the club before long came to meet we may assume that he would not on that day eat meat i fancy mrs piozzi writes anecdotes page one two two dr nugent ordered an omelette sometimes on a friday or saturday night for i remember mr johnson felt very painful sensations at the sight of that dish soon after his death and cried ah my poor dear friend i shall never eat omelette with thee again quite in an agony dr nugent in the imaginary college at st andrews 
was to be the professor of physic boswell's hebrides august the twenty fifth seventeen seventy three and a footnote and the original members were sir joshua reynolds dr johnson mr edmund burke dr nugent mr beauclair mr langton dr goldsmith mr chaumier footnote mr andrew chaumier was of huguenot descent and had been a stockbroker he was a man of liberal education he acquired such a fortune as enabled him though young to quit business and become what indeed he seemed by nature intended for a gentleman hawkins's johnson page forty two in seventeen sixty four he was secretary in the war office in seventeen seventy five he was appointed under secretary of state forster's goldsmith he was to be the professor of commercial politics in the imaginary college johnson passed one of his birthdays at his house post under september the ninth seventeen seventy nine note and a footnote and sir john hawkins footnote it was johnson's intention writes hawkins life page forty three that their number should not exceed nine nine was the number of the ivy lane club johnson i suppose looked upon it as the most clubbable number it was intended says dr percy that if only two of these chanced to meet for the evening they should be able to entertain each other goldsmith's miscellaneous works hawkins adds that mr dyer post seventeen eighty in mr langton's collection a member of the ivy lane club who for some years had been abroad made his appearance among us and was cordially received according to dr percy by seventeen sixty eight not only had hawkins formally withdrawn but beauclair had forsaken the club for more fashionable ones upon this the club agreed to increase their number to twelve every new member was to be elected by ballot and one black ball was sufficient for exclusion mr beauclair then desired to be restored to the society and the following new members were introduced on monday february fifteenth seventeen sixty eight sir r chambers dr percy and mr coleman goldsmith's miscellaneous works in the list in croker's boswell the election of percy and chambers is placed in seventeen sixty five they met at the turk's head in gerard street soho one evening in every week at seven and generally continued their conversation till a pretty late hour Footnote. boswell wrote on april the fourth seventeen seventy five i dine friday at the turk's head gerard street with our club sir joshua reynolds etc who now dine once a month and sup every friday letters of boswell page one eight six in seventeen sixty six monday was the night of meeting post may the tenth seventeen sixty six in december seventeen seventy two the night was changed to friday goldsmith's miscellaneous works hawkins says life pages forty four five we seldom got together till nine preparing supper took up till ten 
by the time that the table was cleared it was near eleven our evening toast was the motto of padre paolo esto perpetua esto perpetua was being soon not padre paolo's motto but his dying prayer as his end evidently approached the brethren of the convent came to pronounce the last prayers with which he could only join in his thoughts being able to pronounce no more than these words esto perpetua mayst thou last for ever which was understood to be a prayer for the prosperity of his country johnson's works volume six page two six nine and a footnote this club has been gradually increased to its present number thirty-five after about ten years instead of supping weekly it was resolved to dine together once a fortnight during the meeting of parliament their original tavern having been converted into a private house they moved first to princes in sackville street then to leteliers in dover street and now meet at parslow's st james's street Footnote. after seventeen eighty three it removed to princes in sackville street and on his house being soon afterwards shut up it removed to baxter's which subsequently became thomas's in dover street in january seventeen ninety two it removed to parslow's in st james's street and on february the twenty sixth seventeen ninety nine to the thatched house in the same street Forster's goldsmith end of footnote between the time of its formation and the time at which this work is passing through the press june seventeen ninety two footnote the second edition is here spoken of malone end of footnote the following persons now dead were members of it mr dunning afterwards lord ashburton mr samuel dyer mr garrick dr shipley bishop of st asaph mr vasey mr thomas wharton and dr adam smith the present members are mr burke mr langton lord charlemont sir robert chambers dr percy bishop of dromore dr barnard bishop of killaloe dr marley bishop of clomphet mr fox dr george fordyce sir william scott sir joseph banks sir charles bunbury mr wyndham of norfolk mr sheridan mr gibbon sir william jones mr coleman mr stevens dr burney dr joseph wharton mr malone lord ossery lord spencer lord lucan lord palmerston lord elliot lord mccartney mr richard burke jr sir william hamilton dr warren mr courtenay dr hinchcliffe bishop of peterborough the duke of leeds dr douglas bishop of salisbury and the writer of this account garrick and the literary club anno domini seventeen sixty four sir john hawkins represents himself as a seceder from this society and assigns as the reason of his withdrawing himself from it that its late hours were inconsistent with his domestic arrangements 
Footnote Life of Johnson, page forty five, Boswell into footnote. In this he is not accurate, for the fact was that he one evening attacked Mr. Burke in so rude a manner that all the company testified their displeasure, and at their next meeting his reception was such that he never came again. Footnote. From Sir Joshua Reynolds, Boswell. The knight, having refused to pay his portion of the reckoning for supper, because he usually ate no supper at home, Johnson observed, Sir John, sir, is a very unclubbable man. Burney. Hawkins, Life, page 231, says that Mr. Dyer had contracted a fatal intimacy with some persons of desperate fortunes who were dealers in India stock at a time when the affairs of the company were in a state of fluctuation. Malone, commenting on this passage, says that under these words Mr. Burke is darkly alluded to, together with his cousin. He adds that the character given of Dyer by Hawkins is discoloured by the malignant prejudices of that shallow writer, who, having quarrelled with Mr. Burke, carried his enmity even to Mr. Burke's friends. Prize Malone. See also Ante, page 27. Hawkins, Life, page 420, said of Goldsmith, As he wrote for the booksellers, we at the club looked on him as a mere literary drudge, equal to the task of compiling and translating, but little capable of original and still less of poetical composition. End footnote. In this he is not accurate, for the fact was that he one evening attacked Mr. Burke in so rude a manner that all the company testified their displeasure, and at the next meeting his reception was such that he never came again. He is equally inaccurate with respect to Mr. Garrick, of whom he says, He trusted that the least intimation of a desire to come among us would procure him a ready admission, but in this he was mistaken. Johnson consulted me upon it, and when I could find no objection to receiving him, exclaimed, He will disturb us by his buffoonery, and afterwards so managed matters that he was never formally proposed, and by consequence never admitted. Footnote, Life of Johnson, page 45, Boswell. Hawkins is equally inaccurate in saying that Johnson was so constant at our meetings as never to absent himself. Ibid, page 44. See Post, Johnson's letter to Langton of March the ninth, 1766, where he says, Dyer is constant at the club. Hawkins is remiss. I am not over-diligent. End of footnote. In justice both to Mr. Garrick and Dr. Johnson, I think it necessary to rectify this misstatement. The truth is that not very long after the institution of our club, Sir Joshua Reynolds was speaking of it to Garrick. I like it much, said he. I think I shall be of you. When Sir Joshua mentioned this to Dr. Johnson, he was much displeased with the actor's conceit. He'll be of us, said Johnson. How does he know we will 
permit him the first duke in england has no right to hold such language however when garrick was regularly proposed some time afterwards johnson though he had taken a momentary offence at his arrogance warmly and kindly supported him and he was accordingly elected was a most agreeable member and continued to attend our meetings to the time of his death mrs piozzi has also given a similar misrepresentation of johnson's treatment of garrick in this particular as if he had used these contemptuous expressions if garrick does apply i'll blackball him Footnote. letters to and from dr johnson volume two page two seven eight three eight seven boswell the passage is as follows if he does apply says our doctor to mr thrale i'll blackball him who sir mr garrick your friend your companion blackball him why sir i love my little david dearly better than all or any of his flatterers do but surely one ought etc End of footnote. as if he had used these contemptuous expressions if garry does apply i'll blackball him surely one ought to sit in a society like ours unelbowed by a gamester pimp or player footnote. Pope's Moral Essays, Epistle 3, line 242, end of footnote. I am happy to be enabled by such unquestionable authority as that of Sir Joshua Reynolds, as well as from my own knowledge, to vindicate at once the heart of Johnson and the social merit of Garrick. Footnote. Malone says that it was from him that Boswell had his account of Garrick's election, and that he had it from reynolds he adds that johnson warmly supported garrick being in reality a very tender affectionate man he was merely offended at the actor's conceit he continues on the former part of this story it probably was that hawkins grounded his account that garrick never was of the club and that johnson said he never ought to be of it and thus it is that this stupid biographer and the more flippant and malicious mrs piozzi have miscoloured and misrepresented almost every anecdote that they have pretended to tell of dr johnson priors malone whatever was the slight cast upon garrick he was nevertheless the sixth new member elected for as i have shown were added by seventeen sixty eight the next elections were in seventeen seventy three croker's boswell when five were added of whom garrick was the second and boswell the fifth in seventeen seventy four five more were elected among whom were fox and gibbon hannah moore memoir says that upon garrick's death when numberless applications were made to succeed him in square brackets in the club johnson was deaf to them all he said no there never could be found any successor worthy of such a man and he insisted upon it that there should be a year's widowhood in the club before they thought of a new election End of footnote. End of section fifty nine